you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, uh, we took a look at the very first recorded sermon of Jesus uh, preached at the local synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. It was a rather special sermon. Uh, In it, he announced that he was God's Messiah and that his ministry would usher in a brand new season of God's blessing for all humanity. And yet, you could probably tell if you paid attention to that reading, his sermon was not very well received. And that's a total understatement since the congregation turned on him at the end, dragged him to the edge of town, and attempted to throw him over a cliff. Now, you might wonder, what did Jesus say here that would cause the people to want to do that to him? Well, it's because Jesus made several hard-hitting statements that challenged not only their smugness, but their arrogance and their self-righteousness, and today I intend to do the same. Fortunately, there are no cliffs in Texarkana. Well, as I said last week, Jewish synagogues were not a whole lot different than our churches today. During their times together, their creeds were recited, prayers were offered, there was some singing and readings. They read one all the time from the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and then they would read from one of the prophets. Certain sections were assigned for particular days, kind of like liturgical readings are assigned in many churches yet today. And after the reading, like you see in the picture, after Jesus would have done the reading, he would sit down uh, in front of the congregation as they remained standing, and he would teach. Now, the rabbi's teaching of that day uh, typically was expected to be just an exposition of whatever scripture text he read on that day. His responsibility was to say, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is how we apply it to our lives, which isn't a great deal different than uh, what we do today. Uh, the, the term rabbi, I think most of you know, means teacher, and it was not typically a paid position in the synagogues. <clears throat> Rather, a rabbi was just a, a recognized authority on the Bible, and his training took place by being tutored by whoever the previous rabbi was. Uh, typically, every synagogue, depending upon their size, had one or two rabbis. Their job was to teach Scripture week by week. Uh, Synagogues also had a policy that said if you had a visiting rabbi, he must be invited to speak. And, of course, that's how Jesus came to speak that day in his hometown. And those of you who study the book of Acts or or the life of St. Paul, you know that Paul, every time he got into a new town, went to the synagogue where he would have been invited to speak, as was the custom. We know that Jesus had just finished teaching all over Capernaum, throughout Capernaum. Uh, he'd come home to his town of Nazareth. Uh, he attended services, and as you read the story of Jesus, it, it always says that Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. In other words, I said last week, Jesus was a regular church attender. He invited to preach. He gained a reputation in the area as a pretty good preacher. He also had a pretty good reputation as a miracle worker. And Luke says in the text today, news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. I mean, people had heard about Jesus. They were eager to see 
and hear what the hometown boy was about to say in his own church. Now, again, from last week, we know that when he got up, uh, one of the readings was from Isaiah chapter 61. And just to refresh your memory, what he read was verses 18 and 19 that said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery to sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up that scroll and he began to teach. Now, in verse 20 of today's text, Luke says, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, it's at that point when everybody was looking at the hometown boy that Jesus said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one who God has sent to preach the good news to the poor, to set captives free, to heal the blind. I'm the Messiah. I am God's chosen one. And as he continued, verse 22 said, All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. I mean, there's just the opening remarks to the sermon. And everybody was sitting there going, this guy's not bad. Listen to the gracious words that come. Well, we know that uh, the phrase gracious words refer to his speaking style. In other words, Jesus had a rather attractive, pleasant, persuasive way of speaking. Now, on the one hand, they were favorably impressed with his ability to teach, but if you listen to what Sue read to you, there were other people who were not nearly so impressed. I mean, they were sitting there saying, we know this guy. He's not anything special. In fact, isn't he Joe the carpenter's boy? Now, I find it very significant that they recognize Jesus as the son of Joseph. Now, what is so significant about mentioning that he was the son of Joseph when he's back preaching in his hometown? Well, you, you, have you all forgotten Christmas already? You all just ready for Easter? Well, back, you back it up, back the wagons up to Christmas a little bit here. Uh, years before, 30-some years before, in that same town, Joseph and Mary had gotten married in Nazareth under rather questionable circumstances. The circumstances occurred when Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married, but not yet living together. Now, of course, today in our society, we got that completely backward. You know, that's because we really basically don't care what Jesus says. We don't really take him very seriously. But in those days, this was known as a betrothal period, a betrothal phase. And a betrothal lasted one year. In other words, when you got engaged or betrothed to be married, it was a one-year waiting period. And since most marriages were arranged by the parents, this period, this one year, gave that couple a chance to get to know one another and prepare for a lifetime of marriage. And during this betrothal period, the couple, of course, lived separately from one another. They slept in separate beds. But it was during this time, uh-oh, Mary is pregnant. Now, if Joseph, had not, if Joseph had chosen not to go through with the marriage, which he considered, everyone would have assumed that Mary 
had been unfaithful. But since Joseph actually took Mary to be his wife, everybody most likely figured out that they had broken custom and had been intimate prior to marriage. Now, the blame would have been on Joseph, but the shame would have been on their son, Jesus. Jesus would have carried a reputation around as being an illegitimate child, or whatever word you choose to use in whatever form of society you trot around in. That was stuck with him all the way through his ministry. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 41, there were people who said, Yeah, we know this Jesus, this illegitimate son of Joseph. So this day when Jesus is up preaching to this congregation in Nazareth, they remembered him and they said, how could he possibly be a prophet of God when he's just an illegitimate child? Now, we get the general idea that Jesus not only can read their thoughts, he probably could hear some murmurs in the crowd, And then Jesus goes on and he says this, Surely you're going to want to quote this proverb to me, aren't you? Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, Jesus went on, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. There was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah didn't go to any of God's people during that time. Instead, he went to a widow who lived in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That would be Gentile country. And there were many in Israel who had leprosy in the times of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed except for Naaman, who, by the way, was a Gentile also. Now, when he said that, the whole congregation, it says, the people of the synagogue were Furious when they heard this, they got up, drove him, you know, literally pushed and shoved him, and took him to the brow of a hill where they hoped to shove him over the hill down the cliff. Now, it doesn't say it, but what happens typically is once they shoved you over the cliff, somebody would pick up a large rock and drop it right on your chest. And then the rest of the people would just pelt you with rocks and you'd be left there to die. You were stoned to death. That's what they intended. But somehow, as they were pushing and shoving, Jesus just walked through the group and left. Now, why such a reaction? I mean, what did Jesus say to these folks? They got him so bent out of shape. I can think of three things. First of all, he said, in effect, this congregation really doesn't have much wisdom. You guys don't have many what I would call spiritual smarts. You don't recognize the prophet of God when you see one. That's one thing Jesus said. Another thing Jesus was saying is, you people, you people are just like those people who lived during the days of Elijah and Elisha. Now, understand, this was one of the lowest, most rebellious periods of the nation's history, a period in which God basically did no great works amongst his people. And third... Jesus was saying, God will choose to bless Gentiles before he ever blesses people like you. Now, I imagine if I could rephrase those things today, if I stood in front of you, I, said, I might say, uh, folks, sometimes I, I, don't even, I don't even know why I'm preaching to you. I mean, you guys are so spiritually stupid as to be unbelievable. You guys are 
dumber than a bag of hammers. I mean, if you guys were really smart, you really knew the word, you'd understand that I was a great Bible teacher. In fact, you wonder why nothing good happens in your church? Well, you're just a bunch of stiff-necked, uncircumcised people, just like the people in the days of Elijah. In Elijah, you're getting exactly what you deserve. And in fact, God is going to choose to bless Baptists before he ever blesses you. Now, I don't know whether that gets get anybody bent out of shape here or not. Now, like I said, I'm thankful we don't have cliffs in Texarkana. But, see, the Jews in Jesus' day did not think highly of Gentiles. I mean, many Jews not only considered themselves God's chosen people, but they also considered themselves to be God's only people. Now, the fact is, Jews are God's chosen people. Uh, he has a special relationship with the Jews, with, the, with Israel, even to this day. They are God's chosen people, but they are not God's only people. And now, this is the one thing that Jesus came to proclaim. And those in Nazareth did not like hearing it. And neither did they appreciate being, care, being uh, compared to the nation's most backslidden generation. They didn't like being told they weren't very spiritual and that they were not giving proper honor to a prophet of God. So what do they do? They intended to push him over a cliff, but he slipped through the crowd and left them, which, of course, proved his point, didn't it? Now, from this story, there are three mistakes I think we can learn. We need to avoid these. Here's mistake number one. The failure to take Jesus seriously. I have a tie-on today that has uh, Jesus walking on the water. Now, I'm not preaching about that. But I remember having this tie-on uh, several years ago, and somebody actually came up to me and he said, uh, do you actually believe that story? I was like, I had to look at the tie-on. Oh, Jesus walking on the water? Yeah, I do. Really? You actually believe that somebody can walk on water? I said, well, I certainly believe Jesus can, and, and to be quite honest... Peter did for a while, too. He says, well, that's, that's a problem. He says, you know, way too many people take Jesus literally. And I said, in other words, you're telling me some people take Jesus too seriously. He said, that's another way of putting it. Now, there are people who just do not take Jesus very seriously. A long time ago, there was a movie called Gandhi. Maybe some of you saw the movie. It's been on television and over time. But in the movie, what I remember is Gandhi is walking down the street with an Anglican priest, and they're about to face a very angry mob. And the priest wants to turn around and run the other direction, but Gandhi said to him, didn't Jesus say we shouldn't resist an evil person? The Anglican priest replied, I always interpreted that phrase figuratively, not literally. See, that's what many of us do. Uh, we read the words of Jesus, uh, and then we either ignore them completely, or we come up with a list of reasons why what he says doesn't apply to us. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You all heard that one, haven't you? Turn the other cheek. But we think it's okay for us to get revenge. I'm going to get them. Jesus said, love your enemies. 
And what do we do? We think it's okay to hate our enemies. In fact, we think it's okay to even hold grudges and hate people that we sit in church with. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. And yet, some of us think it's okay to build our life on kind of a materialistic foundation. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. But we think it's okay to look down on other people as long as we're the ones that are doing the judging. As long as we're better than they are. Jesus said, if you will not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. But you know, we can come up with a detailed theological argument that assures us that we can be forgiven even if we refuse to forgive other people. See, we're sometimes guilty of wanting to identify ourselves with Jesus. Oh yeah, love Jesus, yep, 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 I love Jesus. But we don't take him very seriously. And the people in that day would have been more than happy to have heard just a nice little, I love you, you love me, we're one great big family sermon. And then if Jesus would have done a few tricks outside, you know, turn a little water into wine, you know, walk across the swimming pool, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so they could just leave church that day and go back to their hard-hearted little worlds. They would have been happy as clams at high tide. But Jesus wouldn't allow it. And guess what? Jesus does not allow us to live that way either. I'm going to go back to something else that Gandhi said, and I think I might have put these words. Yeah, it's up there. You Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole of civilization to bits, to turn society upside, to bring peace to this war-torn world, but you read it as if it were just good literature and nothing else. Now he's talking about our Bible. We've, we've got dunamis, dynamite. We've got the power to change the world. I mean, that's why I'd say, to all of us, myself included, it's not enough just to come and park your fanny in a pew every Sunday and go through religious motions. It's not enough just to read his word like you would read, you know, the top ten bestsellers on the New York Times. If you want to be his follower, what Jesus is reminding all of us is that we need to take seriously every last thing that Jesus says. This is not a hunt and peck sort of religion. Here's mistake number two. It's the temptation to be self-satisfied. Now, Jesus compared the people in his hometown church with the people in the days of Elijah and Elisha. That was, like I said before, one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. The entire nation, it seems, was almost backslidden. Those in Nazareth refused to believe that they were anything like that. They refused to be honest about their sinfulness their hard-heartedness, and when they were confronted with the comparison, you folks are just like them. Nope, that's not us. That's not us. We're not like them. Uh, We're not wrong. See, they were self-satisfied. They had no reason to repent. They thought they were doing okay. Oh, they weren't perfect. It would be kind of like some of us today. We're not perfect, but, you know, we're certainly not as bad as some of these other people we read about in the paper or who live in our neighborhood or wherever. And yet Jesus said, you're really far away from where God wants you to be. 
And I think you and I need to be honest with ourselves, too. There are times when we just become very self-satisfied. Remember that old nursery rhyme, little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his curds and stuck in, was that, is that the one where he sticks in his thumb and pulls out a plum and says, oh, what a nice little Lutheran the boy am I. Something to that effect. That's a paraphrase of the old nursery rhyme. But we sometimes think we're okay. At least we're better than other people. Uh, sometimes we actually think that God ought to be just happy as can be that we're on his side. But friends, we need to continue to listen to his voice. We need to be honest with ourselves as to who we are. We looked at the story of the prodigal son this morning. You and the prodigal son came back. The only thing he had to offer his father was pig stink. You know, when we come marching into church on Sunday, we're not doing God a favor. Like God ought to just, oh, let's put this up in the tote board here. They were here today. Uh -uh. You know, that's why even when the Old Testament prophet said, who invited you to come trampling into my house? I mean, who invited you to come in here and make all this noise? I mean, what he was saying, you know, you guys, you got your big celebrations, but it's got nothing to do with me. I'm sure that stung people back in that day. You know, but he's asking us, we need to be honest with who we are. I mean, we need to come as penitent people in need of forgiveness. We need to do what God asks us to do to be obedient to the call he's placed in our life. We can't allow our hearts to get cold. Uh, we cannot be self-satisfied. Here's a third mistake. It's the danger of placing limits on the mercy of God. Now, you can see up here, uh, Jews in the days of Jesus, would, uh, the Jewish men would start their day with this prayer. God, I thank you that I wasn't born a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. And believe me, that was the pecking order in that day. Now, I don't know if you pray a prayer similar to that. I thank God I wasn't born a woman. I thank God I wasn't born a dog. I thank God I'm not a Gentile. In fact, to show you how far they would carry this, I mean, so-called God-fearing, Messiah-seeking people in the days of Jesus were not allowed to give assistance to a Gentile woman who was in labor because doing so would enable her to bring another Gentile into this world. It was absolutely inconceivable to many Jews in the days of Jesus that God could actually love all people equally. And even as the early church began to expand, they had seen the, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They had heard his message about love your neighbor as yourself, love, love God above all things. And yet, even as that church began to expand, the Jewish believers who wanted Christianity to go only wanted Christianity to be Jewish. They did not believe Gentiles could or should have equal status in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm afraid that today, sometimes, we still have a tendency to believe the same thing about certain people. Maybe it's not against an entire race of people, but certain types of people, or maybe even certain people in particular. We sometimes think, I don't think God should show mercy to that person. They don't deserve forgiveness. I don't see them saying they're sorry. I don't see them 
doing such and such. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, my sins are nothing compared to that person. I don't know if any of you ever, have you ever sat there in communion and watched people come up to communion instead of sing the songs? I won't ask you to raise your hand and incriminate yourself. Uh, but I've sat out there too on occasion. You ever sit and watch people as they go up and wonder about them a little bit? You know, I was raised by Germans, German grandparents. And uh, my grandparents were so German Lutheran that they believed what Martin Luther said when Luther said, you know, if, if you don't go to communion at least four times a year, you ought to check out and see whether you're a Christian or not. Well, my, my grandparents were advanced Lutherans. And that is that they only went to communion once a month because they basically figured it only it took about a month to work up enough sins to be forgiven. Now, you may think that's kind of screwy. Now, how did I figure that out? By listening to my grandparents at lunch on Sunday. Now, my grandparents often had the same meal you had for lunch, roast pastor. Uh, I'm just kidding. But my grandparents would sit there, and, and, and they would say something like, like this. You see... Uh, Christians up there at communion again today? Yep. How many times is that this month? I think that's the third time they've been to communion this month. Boy, you wonder what's going on in that home. (laughs) That would be the conversation my grandparents would have. And I'm not for a moment doubting the sincerity of my grandparents' faith that they were not Jesus-loving people. But they had a pretty wide streak of judgmentalism, too. So do we. So do we. Sitting there in judgment on what people wear or don't wear, maybe, when they come to communion. Or, I wonder why they're standing and not kneeling. Or, I wonder, you know, whatever. We're all kind of guilty of that. I hope you kind of understand. I, I, I know my grandparents' illustration is kind of funny. It's humorous. But I hope you also see how condescending that is and how potentially dangerous that kind of thinking is, how it gets to the point of even jeopardizing uh, our right standing with God. I mean, the people of Nazareth did not like being told that God was more inclined to bless Gentiles than them because they believe themselves to be so good and Gentiles to be so bad. I mean, they were wrong because they underestimated the extent of God's mercy. Now, we all know this Bible passage that says, His mercies are new every day. I love that. No leftovers. No secondhand mercy. Every day we get brand new mercy, but do we really understand what that means? It means we get another day without receiving the punishment that we deserve. Instead, he gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. I mean, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness extends to every last person who turns to him. And believe me, I've heard upstanding, quote, Lutherans say, well, why are you worked down in prison? Those guys are just jailhouse conversions. Well, there's 
That's good. At least they're converted. Your conversion was a church conversion. Who, what does it make any difference where you get converted? Well, they're only doing that so they can get... I mean, who are we to judge why anybody would suddenly come to faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, my sins, and i got a pretty good long list, and if you don't think I sin, talk to that lady after church. She could probably point out a few, and in retaliation, I'd point out not. See, that would be a sin in itself, wouldn't it? You know, uh, my sins aren't more respectable because I do pastory sins. I'm no less despicable than any other sinner in this world. I mean, none of us, absolutely none of us, has any right to look at anyone with condescension or judgment. That's a mistake we need to avoid. This is a sad story, really, when you think about it. But you know what's really sad about this story? Now, we've done it in two parts, but that's the way the readings are laid out in the liturgical calendar. But I'll tell you what's really sad about this. There is no indication that Jesus ever came back to his hometown. No indication that he ever came back to Nazareth. And if he would have, no indication that he ever came back and preached at that church again. Here was Jesus, the Son of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. He was coming to proclaim the greatest news man had ever heard, and they didn't want to hear it. I mean, they sat in the presence of God that day, stood in the presence of God that day. They, they could have been like, you know, Mary and Martha, at least, to sit at Jesus' feet and draw from the wisdom that he wanted to share. They could have experienced his miracle-working power. They could have helped usher in the kingdom of God. But they missed it. Missed out on all that good stuff. Why? Because they all thought too much of themselves and did not think of Jesus seriously enough. I mean, they thought too much of themselves to contemplate their own need for repentance. I am a poor, miserable sinner. Remember that from the old liturgy? I'm a poor, miserable sinner. They thought too much of themselves to consider that God's mercy actually extended beyond their little holy huddle whatever that little holy huddle was. And so as Mark says in his gospel, Jesus couldn't do any miracles there in his hometown. He left Nazareth, and he never went back. I think the last screen here is kind of a summary of what I, I kind of hope that we would understand today, to take Jesus seriously. And this is a serious message. And that's not to make the same mistake made by those people in Jesus' hometown. We need to have the courage to confront the sin in our lives. I mean, that's why each and every Sunday we confess our sins. And granted, we do it in a corporate fashion. We do it all together. But each day, confess our sins and confront our sinfulness, even as we do it privately. To have the humility to admit that we need God's mercy as much as anybody else. It's not somebody else who needs it more than us. I need mercy every day. That's why when I think in the morning, you know, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Part of the reason I'm so glad is because His mercies are new every morning, and by golly, I need them. And in my, in my morning time, I will, on many occasions, actually write out the sins 
that I want to confess. And the reason I want to write them out, partly because I'm sometimes stunned when I write, but otherwise it's sometimes too easy just to say, Lord, forgive me my sins, and kind of forget about them. But sometimes I think it's pretty good for us to really acknowledge what they were and to admit that we need his undeserved mercy. It's our only hope of salvation. You know, the only way the prodigal son ever got back in the house was not because of anything he was going to do. Thought he was going to do a bunch of stuff, but his father cut him off. He only got in because of his father's great mercy. He got in because of his father's great grace and great love. You know, when that father ran to him, that father demeaned himself. He lowered himself. And isn't that exactly what it says about Jesus in the Bible, that he became sin for us? He who knew no sin. He humbled himself and became what? You and me. He became human. Why? So that he might, through his life, make a way back to God, to a God that we do not deserve to come into, come to or be in his presence. But because of his great mercy, because of his great love, because of Jesus, we are allowed to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know we need to take you seriously. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we, we know even as we have confessed today in this service that there are times when we have seen these words in your Bible like turn the other cheek and love our enemies and not to judge people that we have done those things. None of our sins are greater or less than anyone else. And so we come today and humbly acknowledge our sinfulness and humbly acknowledge our great need for your grace and your mercy. We are eternally thankful, Father, for the gift of your Son who makes it possible for us to be in your family. And also today, Father, we pray as we come forward to receive the precious body and blood of Jesus Christ that we acknowledge again that it was his suffering death and his resurrection, his shed blood on the cross that buys the forgiveness for our sins. And we thank you for that also. In Jesus' name, amen.